there's no like I am kissing you because sex, right? It's like no, I'm <laughs> kissing you because of connection, because of compassion and intimacy. Because I like kissing. Yeah. <laughs> kiss right? to kiss, not kiss yeah. as a precursor to sex. Today's guest is Kai Werder, a sex educator, coach, and wellness practitioner. And today's episode is all about desire discrepancy, or libido mismatch, or when one partner wants to have sex and the other doesn't, which is common, really, really common, and pretty natural. It's natural for desire It's natural for desire to decline in relationships over time. That happens. And there's a lot that you can do about that. And the first thing you can do is to start talking about sex. And we'll show you how. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. I'm ready when you are. All right, I'm ready. Okay, Kai, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, My name is Kai Werder. I am a sex educator, coach, and wellness practitioner, healing practitioner. Um, My work comes in the background of anti-sexual violence advocacy and working directly with survivors of sexual violence and domestic abuse. So I kind of moved that into talking about consent and talking about relationship building in a really positive way. And so that's really where my work is focused right now. And you just recently put out a guide on desire discrepancy. Yes. Yeah. So it's a workbook that touches on desire discrepancy you know, other language for that might be mismatched libidos um, or, yeah, mismatched desire. So it really kind of dives into how do we communicate about our sexual desire with our partners in a way that allows us to have the connections that we really deeply crave. And it also gets a little bit into explaining what actually is desire and how it works in our bodies so that people can understand what's happening when they're feeling arousal and desire so that they are empowered to hopefully communicate about that with people in their lives. I guess that sounds like a pretty good place to start, right? Like what is desire and desire discrepancy? Is that something that you can kind of shed some light on? Yeah, so desire, there are multiple models of desire from sexologists through the years. And so the first one comes in in the 1960s from Masters and Johnson, who worked to create this model, which is a linear model. And it starts with excitement, 
Then you have the plateau that you're experiencing pleasure as a plateau. Then you have orgasm, which goes up a little bit on the line. And then you have resolution and the line goes down. And so they say that is the model of desire. That's what we start with when it comes to um, research in the field of sexology. And it moves on from there. And there's so many different models from different scientists. And in my workbook, I really touch on why it's valuable to have multiple models of desire, because we all experience desire in different ways. And there's also fluidity throughout our lives and how we experience desire. So then you'll find like more circular models, models that bring in really the emotional aspect of sex. And so I explain those so that folks can say, aha, yes, this one makes sense to me. This kind of explains how I've experienced desire in the past. And I define desire as that which incites you to move towards and invite in pleasure. Hmm. And I create that definition to really be expansive, right? Because we move towards pleasure in so many different aspects of our lives, not just sexual. And I invite other folks to really um, come up with language that works for them around their sexuality. Oftentimes the definitions that we are given they might not align exactly with our experience because there are so many systems of oppression that interact with our bodies and can directly interact with our experiences of sex. And so I invite folks to really create their own definitions so that they can create their own experiences that feel affirming, that feel nourishing. So moving off of that, what is desire discrepancy is when you have two people in relationship, and they don't have the same level of desire. So they don't have the same, some people might use the word libido, they don't have the same libido and desire to have sex. So one person might feel like their ideal sexual relationship could be, you know, having sex three times a week, whereas their partner might feel like they want to have sex once every two weeks or once a month. It's when there's a disconnect in desire. And how do we communicate around that? How do we lean on the expansiveness of intimacy to create connections that are nourishing? And and, and oftentimes a sex educator um, and a sexuality coach, it's one of the most common issues that people come to me and, and to just the sex ed community with is like, I have mismatched libidos with my partner. I love them. We have a beautiful relationship outside of this. But what do we do? Like, are we just not, you know, should we not be together anymore? And so this workbook is really about hopefully not even just educating people, but there's a lot of interactive ways to um, to participate in the workbook, a lot of questions and worksheets and um, exercises that then hopefully can allow people to kind of integrate that into their, um, into their relationships. Can you repeat your definition of desire? I really liked it and I want to hear it again. Yeah. So I define desire as that which incites you to move towards and invite in pleasure. Yeah. I love that. And I love this idea of creating your own definitions. I did that for uh, this flirting with confidence workshop that I'm that I'm hosting. And for me, flirting, the the typical definitions didn't really fit how I experienced it. So for me, it was more uh, playfully connecting with the world, right? Engaging with people in a a playful way. 
That was my definition of flirting, where the traditional ones had, you know, seduction and sort of, sort of things that didn't fit. So I like this idea of making making your definitions, coming up with your definitions that better ex- that better explain your experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really powerful when we're talking about desire and libido in relationships, because what you mean by desire might not be what I mean by desire. Mm-hmm. What you mean by libido might not mean what I mean by libido. And so I love this idea of getting curious about like, when you say this, what do you mean by that? Yeah, another reason why I have folks redefine words for themselves is so that they get curious about the people that they're in relationship with and realize that if they have their own personal definition of desire or of sex, then their partner must as well. And so when we get curious about how our partner defines desire and sex, it might open up this conversation of, oh, I didn't know that you defined sex as, you know, naked sensual time together, that it doesn't have to include genital play. Like that actually allows me to open up then and, you know, explore that more with you. And so I think that it's really about allowing people to have relationships where they feel really nourished and they feel like they can ask for what they want and their partners have that space as well. Um, and getting really clear for yourself about your desires is a part of what helps you communicate them. Yeah. How can you ask for what you want if you don't know what you want and you don't have the language available to make those requests? Yeah. And also there's this element of fear. I talk about this a lot in some of my workshops and courses is that people are really scared of rejection. They're scared of people saying no, no to their request. I think rejection is scary. People don't really have a lot of experience with um, like kind rejection. You know, we don't, we don't, it's not modeled for us. Mm-hmm. There's definitely that element of fear of what if I tell my partner what I really want and they don't want that is definitely an element of moving through desire discrepancy. Um, and so it is about learning how to, how to communicate with compassion and create space for no. And I always tell people, you know, there's this tip that I, I heard from, from a therapist to talk with your partners about how you want to argue, right? And to have that kind of plan of how you want to move through arguments or conflict or hard conversations. And I think that that can also be applied to sex. How do we want to talk about sex in our relationship? What is helpful for you when you hear a no or when you say a no? There are a lot of people who also have a complicated relationship with saying no. A lot of folks who have experienced sexual violence and not had their no's respected, it can be very difficult to say, I actually don't want to have sex right now, or I actually don't want to try that new position or that new kink with you. That's not of interest to me. Um, And so it's really about 
getting comfortable with being able to say and receive no and having that vulnerable conversation with the people that you're in partnership with about how do we talk about sex? When does it feel good to talk about sex? And I always recommend to folks to have these conversations not right before you're having sex and not even after you've had sex, but out of the context of your sexual relationship. So try talking about it over breakfast at the kitchen table. Try talking about it when you go out to the park for a picnic. Try talking about it when you're on a walk together. That kind of can reduce the pressure and it can make it feel less urgent, right? Because it's not like, oh, we're talking about this and then it has to happen right now because, you know, we've started taking our clothes off and we're feeling aroused. When you remove that context, it can be a little bit easier to really dive in vulnerably. And so that's that's a tip around kind of conversations around sex. And, and hopefully that can be helpful for folks who maybe feel that fear of how do I receive a no? How do I, how do I give a no when it's not something that I want? Um, to kind of remove that, that urgency can be helpful sometimes. Yeah, I think that's a great tip. And also the less <laughs> the less you talk about sex, the harder it's going to be to do it, right? I, I, this was me trying to say, the more you do it, the better you are at it in a different way because I, I often repeat myself on this podcast and that, that's normal. But if you're not used to talking about sex, it's going to feel really awkward. Mm-hmm. If yeah. you're not used to playing tennis, if you've never played tennis before, it's, it's going to be awkward. You're not going to be very good or skilled at it and that's normal. And it's sort of like when also, let's just, I'm just keep, keep going with the analogies, you know, <laughs> the longer you don't go to the gym, the harder it is to do it, right? Like to just like motivate yourself to go to the gym. If that's something that you enjoy doing, talking about sex is, is the same way. The longer you go without talking about it, it's really hard to like have that first conversation. Yeah. And that's what I find most with people who, who are experiencing desire discrepancy is like, they're in kind of long-term relationships and it's been going on for a very long time. And it's just kind of become this untouched part of their relationship. So yeah, the, the more you just kind of like check in, like how, how are you feeling about the sex we had last week? What felt good to you? What, what was maybe something that you don't want to do again? Those kinds of questions, just having them regularly is helpful. And, and it's also helpful because our desires change throughout our lifetime. You know, what you loved sexually five years ago is most likely not what you love now, right? There might be new things. There might be something you used to really like that you don't do anymore. Um, and so there are constant fluctuations in in what we crave. There are also constant fluctuations in our libido. So many things impact our libido from the weather um, to how much sleep you're getting, to how much hydration, to your the status of your relationship, to the sociopolitical surroundings and, and happenings in our world, right? So when we think about sex in that holistic way, it also allows us to have more compassion about like, oh, that makes sense why I haven't really been feeling in the mood lately. And how could I let my partner know about that? How can I, how can I have that compassionate conversation? Yeah, I mean, you just touched on 
a lot of really important points. One of them is that desire is going to change over time. And so it's, it's normal and natural for that to happen in, in long-term relationships and in your own personal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's just because there's a de- desire discrepancy doesn't mean that there's a problem. Yeah. I kind of always thought that there was actually, I was of, of the belief that if there was, you know, if there was a problem with your sex life, it meant there was a problem with your relationship. And the more I, you know, do this work and do this research, I realize that that's actually not the case at all. Uh, it felt, it feels like kind of a naive thing to say at the time. And now I, I realize it to be much more complex and nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, similarly, before I was in this field of work, I definitely was like, well, if you haven't had sex with your partner in a certain amount of time, whatever like arbitrary amount of time that you allot to that, right? Um, then your relationship is is a failure. You're like you're not something's not right. And it's like that's such harsh language that we have like that is just we are just setting ourselves up uh, to to really not cr- be creating these these connections that we deserve. And and so I think that so many folks probably when you said that are going to find themselves like nodding their heads. Like, yes, I feel that so deeply. Like we connect. And actually with my clients that, that are experiencing desire discrepancy, I have them write down three qualities of what makes a nourishing relationship for them. And most often they come back and they're like, well, sex wasn't on the list, but why do I feel like if I don't have sex once a week, my relationship is not going well. Um, and so it's really about offering yourself those, those reframes, but like what actually like get it clear. What, what is a part of a nourishing relationship for you? And are those things present? Um, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the reframe around that is really important and, and inviting in that nuance and complexity. I'm, I'm guessing that some, if not most of the people that you ask those questions an emotional connection was probably on that list. Yeah, absolutely. Emotional connection, quality time spent, you know, all of these these components to relationships. Uh, and it depends on how you like to receive and express love um, about what might be on your list. But I have not ever had a client come back and say the amount of sex that I was having is on that list. Maybe sexual connection is a, is a component or like erotic intimacy. But then we talk about the expansive ways in which you can have erotic intimacy and physical intimacy that don't have to be about genital play. Right. Um, and so then that, you know, then offers more spaciousness to explore that and to have that really important component of your relationship be present, even when there are, you know, libido fluctuations that you're moving through. Maybe we can give some people some examples of things they can do that can lead to deepening physical intimacy that doesn't involve the genitals. Yeah. So some things that you can do, you can exchange massages you can take a bath together or a shower together. Ooh. You can, yeah, that's a really good one. Bath time um, is bath. Okay, well, you've already touched on two of my favorites: massage and bath time. <laughs> Another one that I love is um, doing an erotic photo shoot 
with one another. So like allowing yourself to see how your partner sees you through a lens, which this won't be for everyone, right? But I, but I think that it can be really affirming to take erotic pictures of one another and, and say, what do you feel sexy in? I want to see you put that on and I want to take your photo. And then exchanging that offering to one another can be really beautiful. I love that. I love that, by the way. Yeah, it's a fun one. And it, cooking one of your favorite meals and eating together. Um, going Even going on a walk and making sure that you're kind of exploring all of your senses. So smelling the flowers along the way, moving really slowly and touching things and picking things up and fe- explaining how does the sun feel on your skin to your partner. Um what sounds do you find pleasurable as you're going for a walk? All of these things that you can engage in, um, even just cuddling, right? Like cuddling, cuddling naked, cuddling with clothes on. All of these things are are enhancing and creating a sense of, of physical intimacy. I would love to hear any more the suggestions that you have as well. Oh, I just, I keep thinking about bath time. It's so fun. <laughs> it is. <laughs> if you have a bath that's, you know, big enough to accommodate two people. And oftentimes they're not, but we kind of, you know, we make it work. Yeah, (laughs) There's ways of making it work. As long as you don't have a spout in your back, you're good. Mm -hmm, For sure. Um, Yeah. Eye gazing, I think can be really fun. I think that's sort of on the level of erotic pictures. It might not be for everybody because of how intimate it is, but it usually Mm -hmm. does bring a lot of, of intimacy, emotional intimacy and depth. So eye gazing and breathing together, right? So Mm -hmm. some sort of breath work, meditate, like meditating together is really sweet. Um, uh, Like foot massages. That's like easy, right? Foot massages, playing with your partner's hair. My partner really likes um, gentle, like finger grazing on her back. That's her Mm -hmm. thing. Uh, And that just like drives her crazy. Um, it's really relaxing. It doesn't necessarily turn her on, but she really, 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 really likes it. Mm. So, uh, yeah, just giving, we, we sort of call it giving, giving each other care. And sometimes it's like, you know, I have like a hip that hurts. So sometimes she like just like jiggles my one hip and pulls my leg and, you know, massages it and that feels really good. And, um, and isn't sex, you know, mm-hmm. like that's like, Sometimes it's naked, sometimes it's not, but it's not in the sex category. Right. Um, so there's a lot of things that we can do if we get out of this idea that sex equals intimacy. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many different forms of intimacy, um, emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, intellectual intimacy, spiritual intimacy, which you kind of touched on with like meditation, um, and so exploring the forms of intimacy that you want to explore with people. And um, I think that that is really powerful. And it also, you know, one thing, one, um, one reason I also created my workbook was because I was seeing a lot of response to mismatch libidos be like, we'll be non-monogamous. There you go. The person with the higher <laughs> libido can have more sex. The person with the low, lower libido doesn't have to feel the pressure. And uh, this advice just doesn't really, it doesn't get to, like you said, that nuanced, complex area of, of desire and connection. Um, because one, non-monogamy is not for everyone. I, I would go as far as saying that it's not for most people. 
Sure. Yeah. It's, it's hard and, um, takes a lot of intentional work and communication as, as all relationships do. And so that advice, you know, when you give that to someone who's really struggling and then they feel like, well, non-monogamy is not for me, then, then that's really hard realization to come to for them. Um, so it doesn't really align. And also folks who are non-monogamous sometimes, that mismatch libido with one partner for the higher libido person having sex with someone else doesn't naturally like just make it feel better because there are so many reasons that we want to have sex and that we seek sex right it's not just for like that orgasm that um touch it is about so much more than that and so if in one of your relationships you are really craving that sexual intimacy with your partner and they're experiencing, you know, low, lower libido and they're not really interested in that right now. Um, and your desire is rooted in that creating that sexual intimacy with that person. That's not just going to go away because you have other partners to have sexual intimacy with. And so again, it, it, it ignores that nuance, that complexity. And so I think it's important to get to the root of, of why do you want to have sex in this moment? If it is just about orgasm, you can masturbate. Um, <laughs> you Simple. know, you can, you can provide peasy. yourself that. If it's about emotional intimacy with your partner, can you have a really deep dive intimate conversation with them and like ask some curious questions to one another? If it's about physical intimacy and sex isn't on the table, can you do any of the things that we just said, right? like cuddle naked, massage, bath, etc.? You know, getting curious about your desire allows you to then get creative about filling that need. Yeah. Also, uh, I'm just the, the one thing that's like popping to my mind is this idea that um, there, there's like spontaneous desire and responsive desire. And some, so one person might have more spontaneous desire, which is just like what it sounds like. You all of a sudden feel like having sex. And responsive desire is more like, I don't feel like having sex, but if we start cuddling and making out, I'm probably going to want to have sex. Is that right? Am I sort of close there? Yeah, absolutely. Responsive desire comes after sexual stimulus is felt. It's kind of a gradual level of feeling turned on. And it takes intention to kind of create that to create desire, right? Whereas spontaneous desire, um, it starts in the mind, sometimes not always physically felt right away. You might feel quick to to feel turned on and it can show up without stimulation. So both are wonderful, right? But like you said, Everyone experiences desire differently. So you might have a partner who experiences spontaneous desire and you might experience responsive desire. And, you know, you might not even know that that is where the disconnect is happening, that you need a really specific context or environment in which allows your desire to flourish, um, which then touches on the model of desire, which is the dual control theory, which um, Emily Nagoski actually wrote a whole book about it. It's called Come As You Are. Great book. And yeah, wonderful book. And so it is about touching on like some people really need a very specific context to allow 
their exciters to turn on, what turns them on to turn them on, right? And if they're in a context where their inhibitors, what, you know, doesn't allow desire to flourish are too high, then it's going to be really impossible to feel arousal, to feel desire. And so, again, being informed and and learning more about how desire happens can then allow you to say, oh my gosh, aha, like, I figured it out. I, I have a, I have responsive desire and here is what my exciters are and here's what my inhibitors are. And when I feel like, you know, that house is dirty or I've had a really stressful day at work or, you know, we don't have enough time because someone else might be coming home in 15 minutes, right. you know, or 30 minutes, whatever, then I'm not able to get turned on. I'm not able to go there. Right. And so yeah. then that might, give you the context that you need to say, okay, this, this will be helpful. This, you know, if we have more time, if we have two hours set aside where we can really get intimate, then I can feel access to my desire, to my arousal. Um, so yeah, that is, that's helpful. Yeah. So for some people, a quickie before work, not going to work for some people, that might be the most exciting thing ever. Yeah. Everyone is different. And I guess it gets tricky when one person wants a quickie before work and the other one doesn't, mm-hmm. right? So, like, what? So, we've been talking a lot about sort of theory, and people can kind of figure out a little bit about how to get through this. But what if you want to have sex and your partner doesn't? Like, what? How do we deal with that? And how do we deal with it when it's like an ongoing issue? Mm-hmm. Well, so like I said, getting to the root of why you want to have sex is helpful because then it allows you to kind of fulfill that need in in creative ways. But also, like you touched on, when it's continual, when it's going on for really long periods of time that you want to have sex and your partner doesn't. Mm. To me, if that has been going on for, and, and everyone long period of time is going to be a different amount. So I'm not going to like give an arbitrary amount of time for this. It's going to be when you start to feel uncomfortable and like there is a big disconnect because you have not had sex with your partner and you're really craving that. Oftentimes when I speak to the lower libido partner, they express this desire to be turned on this I want to want sex, but it's just not there. And so there's work that both partners can do, right? So there's work that the lower libido partner can do to really get curious about their desire. And like we're talking about, maybe they experience responsive desire and their inhibitors, maybe they're going through a really stressful time at work or in another relationship in a friendship or family, you know, relationship. Um, and they're, so their inhibitors have been up for months, mm-hmm. you know, without them even realizing that that's what's going on, that that's kind of what is closing the door to sexual intimacy with their partner. And without knowing what your exciters are, it's really hard to then create that context and say, okay, well, I know my inhibitors are really high right now because I'm going through a stressful time at work, but you know, what are my exciters? How can I try to turn the volume up on those to create the intimate environment that I do want with my partner 
right? And so like, like you touched on at the beginning of the podcast is like, the longer we go without talking about sex, the harder it becomes. And so what happens when it's when it's been going on for a very long time is usually that the conversation then is also being avoided. And everyone feels too nervous to bring it up. The higher libido partner feels too nervous to bring it up because they don't want to put pressure on their partner. And the lower libido partner feels too nervous to bring it up because what if they bring it up, but then they can't follow it up with sex, right? Um, And so it is about starting the conversation and then having the tools on both ends to create an environment where both of your desire can flourish. If your partner doesn't know that you really feel excited to have sex when the sheets are clean and, um, you know, you're fresh out of the shower or you, you know, it's a weekend, so you haven't worked, you know, if they don't know that, then they can't help you create that environment to to have sexual intimacy. And so it's about breaking down that barrier of miscommunication, of not talking, and just starting to have the conversation and, and, and informing each other about what's going on with you. Um, it's really helpful for the higher libido partner to hear, I want to want to have sex with you, but I don't know what's happening right now. Or I've been really stressed at work and, you know, how can we kind of troubleshoot our way through this? Yeah. Can you help me create the circumstances which make it easier for me to get turned on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What I heard, what I heard was sort of like a two prong approach. One of, one of which seems to be sort of the one that needs to happen first is a little bit about getting curious around what are the things that turn me on and turn me off, Mm -hmm. right? As a lower libido partner. If I get more information about this, and Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, is great for this because she goes into super detail about, you know, uh, the gas and the brake, right? As what you were calling the inhibitors and the um, the exciters, right? So what turns me on, what turns me off? And can we create a condition, circumstance, environment in which the brake pedal is sort of minimized and the gas pedal is maximized. Exactly. Which means that there's work that has to happen there. Like you can't just say like, oh, we'll, we'll just kind of wing it mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, because winging it hasn't really worked, right? If you find yourself in a, in a situation where there's a lot of discrepancy and there's been discrepancy for a long time and no one's talking about it, then that's obviously not working. Yeah. So that person can do some work around what turns me on, what turns me off. And then there's this idea of sharing that with maybe the higher libido partner. So opening the lines of communication. I understand that you want to have sex with me more than I want to have sex with you sometimes. I also kind of feel a little bad. I feel bad about that because I love mm-hmm. I love having sex with you. I love connecting that way and I don't want to be the kind of person that doesn't want to be having as much sex as you do that. I feel bad about it and then it's interesting this sort of leads me to this idea that there's probably some guilt mm-hmm. on the lower libido side, right? Feeling guilty, feeling bad about not being able to provide, not being able to to like have as much sex as the higher libido partner does. Or mm-hmm. wants to, and then probably even guilt on the higher libido person side yeah. as well of like feeling guilty that like they want to have sex so much and their partner doesn't, and they don't want to pressure them mm-hmm. because they love them, 
And yet they have this need of connecting physically that isn't being met. And that's also hard. It is. Yeah. And so two tools that can be helpful as you're kind of beginning this conversation with your partner are one for the higher libido partner, accept the kind of intimacy that your partner can offer you right now. And for the lower libido partner, get clear. What, what kind of intimacy can you offer your partner? Cause oftentimes, like you said, when this is going on for a very long time and it's not being talked about, other forms of intimacy also seem to not be present as well. Mm. So it seems to, to be like partners, you know, they might have like a, a kiss goodbye or a kiss goodnight um, or like some hugging or maybe some cuddling before bed. But like really the deep intimacy that, um, that they're both craving is kind of also being avoided because sex has been avoided as a conversation, as a, a relationship component for a very long time. Yeah. So the lower libido partner, get clear and tell your partner what you can offer them. Can you offer them really steamy makeout sessions can you offer them naked cuddle time? Can like all the all of the things that we um, kind of brainstormed right about around intimacy outside of sex, and then for the higher libido partner, accept what what they can offer you, and then when you start to feel comfortable in that space of offering and accepting, schedule sensual time, schedule it, put it on the calendar. And I know that sounds so, like for so many people the opposite of sexy. But because we're taught that sex is supposed to happen in this spontaneous way, right? Like we get so many cultural and societal messages that that's how sex is supposed to happen. It's just supposed to happen spontaneously and it's supposed to be really hot and sexy and there's no communication. Like we just know how to touch people intrinsically, right? That, those are the <laughs> messages that we get. And so people are like scheduling sex, that, that doesn't seem like how it's supposed to work. Um, but this is a really helpful tool for, for all partnerships, even partnerships who aren't experiencing desire discrepancy. It can, it can be good to sometimes just like say, you know, Sunday afternoon at 3 PM, we both don't have anything on our schedule. So let's schedule some sensual time. And I use the word sensual time, especially for partnerships that are experiencing mismatched libidos, because you might get to that Sunday afternoon and if you scheduled sex and sex doesn't happen, that can cause huge <laughs> tension. Right. Um, it can cause an argument. It, it, it can just kind of throw you completely off track. So scheduling erotic sensual time then can be like, oh, what, what do we want to do together? Well, we could make out and see where that leads us. We could give massages and see where that leads us. We could watch porn. We could read erotica. All of these things, right? And so it's about carving out time together that is intentionally intimate and erotic that can be a helpful tool on your path to kind of rebuilding your sexual relationship together a play date yes love that adults <laughs> don't play enough we need more play. like when you were talking about that sounds like fun I, I was like yes adults need more just like fun and playfulness. There's so much, uh, so much healing that can be found through play. Yeah. We got to, you know, not everything has to be so serious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we need to play more. Yeah. Like t spend time talking about sex and your desires, but also spend time just practicing intimacy together. <laughs> you know, I, I read this, this, this is obvious, 
maybe it's not obvious. Maybe it's obvious to me, but um, scheduling playtime is great because then we have something that we can look forward to. Mm-hmm. And that can build the desire. Yeah. Right? Like this thing that you look at, oh my God, what are we going to do? Who knows? I have no idea, but I'm really looking forward to it. Like I, I've been scheduling playdates with my partner since the, since the very beginning. And that, mm-hmm. hasn't, that hasn't stopped. Yeah. And you're like, oh, what am I going to wear? Like what, like, you know, like what am I feeling excited about? What are they feeling excited about? And do I want to trim my pubes? Who knows? Yeah, like it allows you time to prepare, <laughs> which can be great for folks on so many levels. The level of preparedness for, for people who have anxiety can help you feel prepared for people um, who've experienced sexual trauma it can help you feel like, okay, I know that I'm scheduling at this time. Like I'm feeling excited about it. So I love that. And kind of what you're touching on this like build of excitement um, brings me to this other thought uh, around foreplay all day, which is setting aside a day every once in a while where you don't talk about groceries or a to-do list or who's picking up the kids or taking the garbage out or whatever, walking the dog. It's about infusing your day with intimacy so whether you're at work maybe sending like a flirty text or um having intimate touch as you're like making breakfast and coffee together and allowing that erotic energy to build throughout the day because Mm. the world will not fall apart if you don't talk about your obligations for one day you know, like it will be okay. I mean, it's already falling apart whether you talk exactly. about the to-do <laughs> list or not. Oof, yeah, you got me there. <laughs> <laughs> it's both, okay, it's, it's and or, it's both falling apart and not falling apart. Right. Your personal relationship and world will not crumble down if you don't talk about the to-do list for a day. And so just setting aside a day where it's just about kind of allowing that intimacy to build and then seeing what happens as the day progresses. Yeah. And this idea that foreplay starts after sex ends, Mm. right? The foreplay for the next time starts Mm -hmm. after the, you know, the last sexual encounter, Mm -hmm. which is basically like just keep flirting and building that kind of love, erotic, sensual, playful energy with the person that you're in relationship with, whatever the, st- whatever the stages of the relationship. It doesn't have to be just for committed partnership. Yeah. Um, so it's not just like, oh, they're turning it on right now because they want to have sex. Mm-hmm. No, they're consistently turning it on because they want to live in that kind of w- world. Right, yeah. they want to build that kind of environment on a ongoing basis. Yes, I love that so much. Yeah, I think that to me is the one of the ways of building the kind of environment that invites more play, mm-hmm. more sex, is to always be sort of turning it on without expectation that it's going to lead to anything. Mm-hmm. Yes. You commit yourself to the process of loving this other person or building intimacy with this other person. And you detach from the outcome of right. what's going to come of this. Like yeah. there's no, like I am kissing you because sex, right? It's like, no, I'm <laughs> kissing you because of connection, because of compassion and, and intimacy. And uh, I love that. I think that that's a really wonderful, wonderful way to frame it. Because I like kissing. 
Yeah. <laughs> kiss right? to kiss, not yeah. kiss as a precursor to sex. And this is, it's kind of, this is where it gets a little tricky and nuanced because as a higher libido partner, you, if you talk about this stuff, you'll know what the conditions are that might make the lower libido partner might turn them on and, you know, entice them to have sex. So I want to recognize that it's both good to know what your lower libido partner needs in order to feel safe and excited to have sex and to not just use that stuff whenever it like is convenient for you, but to sort of always be mindful of what are the things that make my partner feel safe. I love that so much because oftentimes the context which allows for desire to happen is also a context in which people just simply feel safe. It's, it's not always about arousal and desire. It's like, well, I should want my partner to, well, I don't like the word should. Um, I but could. <laughs> yeah, like it, it's wonderful when my partner is not stressed out. Ooh. That is, that's a wonderful thing for them. It's a wonderful thing for our relationship. And so, you know, if I have the capacity, can I do the dishes right now? Because I know that that would actually mean so much to them when they came home from work later on, you know, might not mean that much to you. Like you might not care about, you know, dishes in the sink, but you might know now that like, that is a big thing for them. That if they see that when they get home, it's a big stressor. So if you have the capacity, can you both be extending the environment that allows for a more compassionate and nourishing relationship. Um, to self and, and to, to your partners. Dishes in the sink. That I've actually heard of that as an act of foreplay. <laughs> I mean, removing them, not <laughs> turning them, <laughs> turning dirty dishes into clean dishes uh, is an act of, can be an act of foreplay mm-hmm. for yeah. some people. Yeah. Oh, look, they're taking care of mm-hmm. a thing that I don't really like to do or that stresses me out. And uh, <laughs> so I have this thing where I have a hard time like getting in the mood if the kitchen is a mess, mm-hmm. right? So if we're having like dinner and sex, and that's something I'll talk talk about after. If the kitchen is a mess, I really kind of want to just cl- like just deal with that first, and then and then I have like more space to to like relax, and I don't have to really worry about it. And that and that's just maybe like my you know clean. I have like cleanliness um, tendencies. Mm-hmm. So I know that to be true for me. And my partner doesn't have to go do them. We can do them together. I can do them on my own. I, <laughs> it doesn't matter as long as it gets done. And then there's also this idea of like, if we're talking about like uh, stressors, right? Or environments that are conducive to sex. For me, having sex after eating is just never that great. Mm, like, yeah. like, you know, Dan Savage had coined this term a long time ago, fuck first. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to have like dinner and sex, like have the sex first and the dinner after. And I, that really works for me. Yeah. I agree with that as well. Like after like my stomach is full and I'm just like, like now I just want to like lay down and snuggle maybe like I'm not really in the mood. Um, so I, I agree with that as well. And, and you know, like uh, the dishes thing brings up this idea around like mind chatter and that it can be really distracting to like have things that on your mind when you're trying to be intimate with someone. And so the dishes thing touches on this like, larger idea of just like what creates like mind chatter for you? <laughs> what is distracting thought for you um, that can kind of pull you away from really being present with like intimacy 
and, and yeah, being able to remove those, those kind of things that create mind chatter um, in the moment. And also learning to let shit go. Mm, yeah. Right. Like for me, is it really important that the, the kitchen is clean before we have sex? Probably not actually. Like it's maybe feeding into my neurosis or whatever a little bit. And I think maybe sometimes I can actually practice letting go and just saying like, oh, I wonder what would happen if uh, <laughs> we we played and the kitchen was a mess. Yeah. I wonder if I could actually, you know, relax in that mm-hmm. circumstance. And I know I can and I have before. Right. Uh, but I get to play more like a meditative role, right? Like... I let go of this idea that the kitchen need the story, the kitchen needs to be clean in order for me to relax. I think that that maybe is like more of an advanced level for people who are experiencing mismatched <laughs> libidos. Like maybe that's like step six on the journey right. um, because it might feel really important at first, but I love that. Like what would happen if we just had sex and, you know, the sheets weren't, perfectly fresh out of the dryer if that's a thing for you or if you know if like we just came back from a run and we haven't showered yet like what would happen whatever your mind chatter things or like kind of uh moments of like oh no this needs to happen before sex what would happen if you let them go i like that that i think is a really um really good approach and you know it might just be so loud that it's just not going to happen. Then you'll yeah. know, oh, this is what happens. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm actually unable to, to really relax into this yeah. experience. I think at this point, what might be helpful is I want to share something that I learned called the three-part invite. <laughs> and I did a workshop on this this weekend uh, that I, I learned this three-part invite from Dr. Allison Ash, who was a past guest on my podcast, Um, we did an episode called Authentic Seduction. Mm. And I think the three-part invite is really beautiful in the fact that it is soft. It's a soft invite and it it gives an out. It's a double buy-in type of uh, invite. And I'll share it with you and you can let me know what you think. But I use this often with my partner and I've used it in a lot of past relationships and actually I use it really, I use it all the time for a lot of different things. You can use it in a lot of different contexts, but basically the framework is um, if you're open to it, right? That's part one. Uh, And other ways of saying that is if you're up for it, if you're available, if you're a yes, if you're keen, if you're pumped, whatever, that's kind of the buy-in portion. I would love this is the request. I'd love it if we gave each other massages. I'd love to take a bath with you. I'd love to um, go down on you for 35 minutes, 35. I don't know why the five, 30, <laughs> 30 very specific, 35 minutes. I want to set a timer for 35 minutes and I want to go down <laughs> right. on you. Um, I would love it if we tried anal exploration. I would love it if uh, we could schedule that meeting that we've been talking about. I would love it if uh, we can start jogging together or play tennis, right? So that's part two. Mm-hmm. I would love it if, and then the third part is the out. And if you're not up for it, I understand. Mm-hmm. And if you're not up for it, I'd love to hear what you would be up for. And if you're not up for it, no problem. Let's just watch whatever people are watching these days. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to invite people to use the, th- <laughs> if you're up for it, I would love to invite <laughs> you to use the three-part invite when you are proposing having sex Mm-hmm. Or even you can use this as a way to have a conversation yeah, about sex. So for people who are listening, who um, 
don't currently have a practice of talking about sex, you could say to your person, um, hey, if you're up for it, I'd really love to spend some time talking about our sex life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. that that's such a wonderful invitation. And it gives people this space to say, well, not right now, but could we talk about it tomorrow afternoon, you know, when I'm done with my work day? Or, you know, it, it gives that opportunity to, um, or to have the conversation right then and there. And so I think it's a really wonderful practice. It's a fun tool. And you, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say this, but I'm going to say it anyways. The third part is kind of optional, right? The, and if you're not up for it, it's okay. Because sometimes you don't want to leave it out. Like, mm-hmm. um, if you're up for it, I'd really like to spend some time and talk about the status of our relationship. Mm-hmm. Sometimes leaving the out out <laughs> is okay. Yeah, and I think it, it's like you said, it depends on the context of the conversation, of the the, the moment, of the relationship. The like, like we said, it goes back to the nuance and complexity of you know maybe it's really important to have that end last part in, or maybe you feel like no, like they like this person, they know if the if it's not the time that they can let me know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Some people don't have a hard time saying no. Mm-hmm. And if you're with one of those people and you know that, then the third part isn't as crucial. But a lot oh. of people do have a hard time saying no. Mm-hmm. And so putting the out there sort of like really takes the stakes out of the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, they, they've said, if I'm not up for it, it's okay. Like if I'm not, if I'm not up for anal sex, it's okay. Then you can just say like, yeah, actually, I'm not really comfortable with that quite yet. Although it's something I might want to explore with you in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Um just continually letting people know that you can receive their no, especially if it's someone that that has a hard time with a relationship with that word is really affirmative. Just being like, it's okay. I can receive your no. And I'm, it's, I'm not going to be upset. I'm not going to, it's not going to cause a tension. Right. I think that's often where this fear of saying no comes from is that fear of like tension or um, making someone upset or hurt. Disappointing them. Yeah. Letting someone know, like I can receive it. Like I've got this. That can be really affirmative. Are we, I mean, this is obviously a conversation that we could have for hours and hours. Are <laughs> we missing any obvious piece here that mm. uh, that we might, might want to leave our listeners with? I don't think so. I feel like we, we touched on so much um, that I feel like it should hopefully be a, a nourishing conversation for people to listen to. <laughs> well, perfect. And if they want more, then they can get your workbook. Yeah, absolutely. Because the workbook has a ton of journal prompts. It has um, a description of many models of sexual desire. It has definitions of libido, desire, sex drive, uh, things that impact your libido, some, some, of, some of the stuff we didn't touch on. And so I want to encourage anybody that, that wants to go deeper on this to get the workbook. I have the workbook. It's awesome. So I highly recommend it. And it's $25. So it's affordable and it's a fantastic resource, especially if... Uh, you don't have the tools, like now you can have some tools. Hmm. And this could be an inspiration for you to have the conversation um, about sex with the person that you're having sex with and give you a lot of language that could be helpful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> and so I have two, two more questions. First of all, where can we find you and how can we work with you? Yeah, so my Instagram handle is at Corinne, C-O-R-I-N-N-E dot Kai. And my website is CorinneKai.com. 
which is where you can download the workbook if you're interested. Um, I am taking one-on-one sexual wellness clients if you're interested in sex sex ed coaching. Um, And I also offer other services, like if you just have a quick question about desire or libido as a follow-up from listening to this podcast, you can send me an email and we um, we can figure that out. So that is pretty much all of my information. And yeah. Then the final question, which is, what does love mean to you? Ooh, that's a big one. Um, What does love mean to me? I think love is really the center of how I want to live my life. Um, For the past couple of years, I've been realizing that the most important aspect of my life and the reason that I feel like, you know, excited to wake up in the, in the morning is my relationships. Mm. It's, I really care so deeply about creating intentional, nourishing, intimate relationships with not only my partners, but also my friends and my community and just being a human in the larger world. And and I hope that love is infused in all of that. So I really think that for me, love is really kind of the center of, of how I live my life. Mm, Wow. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom, Kai. Thank you so much. I really appreciated being a part of this. Thank you for spending this time with Kai and me learning about desire discrepancy. You listening means a lot to me. And if this podcast and my work means a lot to you, I'd like to invite you to become a monthly contributing member of this work. If you would be bummed that this podcast ceased to exist, the best thing you can do is support my work by making a small but meaningful monthly contribution. You can do that by going to thelovedrive.com forward slash join. That's J-O-I-N. And for everybody who already does, thank you so much. Your support means the world to me. It really, really does. And it makes a huge difference in my life. And to everybody else, have a beautiful week.